0: We are just going to take a moment right now um, to hear uh, testimony, uh, to hear one of our sisters, Melissa Griggs, testify to what the, the Lord's done in her. Uh, we have a series of classes that um, meet uh, th- uh, during the week, throughout the year, as a way of uh, just giving uh, teaching as well as forming Christ within the lives of, uh, within the lives of our uh, people. Uh, those along with our house churches and our worship services are kind of uh, what we want to in- involve everyone into in the life of our Life of our congregation. So, uh, Melissa's finished her uh, third year, right, at UCF, and she's uh, studying physical therapy, hoping to go into that uh, field perhaps. So, as she comes to share what the Lord's done in her in this Bible study class, let's welcome her up uh, to come.
1: is my testimony i was anticipating the harvest 2-1 signups from the time that i heard the testimonies from previous classes before i figured why not all my friends are doing it and it would be an awesome opportunity to seek more of christ and be committed to something within the church don't get me wrong my life before harvest 2-1 was slightly complicated i was newly committed as a member to the ministry and the previous year was a spiral of hardships in my life a little over a year ago i lost sight in my left eye and there were a lot of unanswered reasons and speculations behind the whole situation. I was confused, very worried, and insecure about the future. Although I tried to cover it up with smiles and pleasant remarks about the circumstances, I was really scared and questioned what God had in store for my future. I thought God, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I thought God had big plans for me, but if what the doctors were saying came into fruition, how could I possibly be, sorry. (laughs) How could I possibly be any use to him if things in my life got harder? Needless to say, when tested, I had baby faith and maturity in Christ is what I was still seeking. Coming into Harvest 201, coming into Harvest 201 I was pumped and ready to dive into the Word. It was, a very, it was a new year, and I really wanted to start off and finish strong. However, as the weeks passed along, the time I spent doing the homework and going over lessons got pushed to the last minute. Looking back, it really was a true reflection of the time I devoted to seeking and spending time in the Word. I was serving my unholy leftovers to a holy God. Harvest 201 really helped humble and challenge me when we learned that worship was declaring someone's worth. It's not limited to singing songs by David Crowder, but time devoted to seeing God for his true worth and recognizing him in everything. Romans twelve two says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. The bigger gods in my life became the bigger worship in my life. So why did I think that I could possibly know what God's will for my life was? One of the lessons that struck me right where I needed it was found on trial in our lives. You all know the song, Refiners Fire. I sang it a countless number of times, not knowing that it was a declaration of pure joy in times of trial. The things that I have faced and will face are God's testing grounds to mature me in my faith. Hebrews twelve eleven. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. We all will face the fire, but need not forget that God promises that there will be a way out, and he will never put more on us than we can bear. It is a necessity to becoming pure and holy before a perfect God. Going into the world after Harvest 201, I know that I have victory in Christ because I have confidence in the promises that he has given to me. I learned that living a life that is filled with true worship and worship given to a God is a life that is good and pleasing, which is ultimately God's will for my life. Before, I was fearful for the future and uncertain what God wanted of me. I know his mercy is endless, and he has placed the right people in my life to walk with me in dark times. I encourage all of you to take Harvest 201 and not go into it expecting the same convictions or life lessons that I or any of the previous students experienced. God is a personal being, and he sees each and every one of us individually. Instead, be encouraged to seek and be blessed by the word and share the good news of Christ, of what Christ is doing in our lives. Thank you.
0: Thank you, uh, Melissa. Uh, yeah, I'm always uh, yeah, encouraged uh, as I um, saw Melissa go through um, you know, a lot of the things that she was mentioning and, and talking about, and, and seeing um, that faith arise within her uh, was a challenge and, and blessing. So, um, thanks, Melissa, for, for living it and um, for sharing that with us. Uh, I know you guys have probably heard a lot of uh, sayings and, and proverbs about uh, the importance of starting something well. You, you hear the ancient—I uh, think this was from Mulan or something. It goes, "The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step." Uh, Mulan and other famous Chinese people. I don't know why it's always Chinese people who, who say these famous things. Either Chinese people are anonymous of saying it, but um, or. Uh, A job well started is a job that's half complete, right? You hear things like this. And we we, we hear often about the importance of starting something well. I think when we think about it, we would all be able to say that while starting well is important, how we finish is of utter importance as well. In fact, a lot of times that's how somebody's legacy is defined, not by how well they start, but how well or how poorly they finish. We all know people who started out really well. I was thinking about the basketball player named Allen Iverson. I loved him because we grew up in the same, um, he went to Georgetown University, which is about stone's throw from where I grew up. And he was an amazing basketball player. Uh, NBA all-star many times with the Philadelphia 76ers. But towards the tail end of his career, uh, he was known for being a ball hog, not passing enough and, and things like that. And so he kind of – no one really wanted him on their team. Even though he was like a multi-time all-star, he was a free agent, wanted to do- join an NBA team. Nobody wanted him. End up going to Turkey, of all places, to play basketball. And now he's just kind of like an, an afterthought, and nobody wants him. They don't even want him on their fantasy basketball team. Um, this is how low he's fallen. And it's not so much about how well we start, but it's about how we finish, we're talking about that because we've, been, for the past 10 weeks, been talking about the life of Jacob. We've looked at Jacob's life from before he was born in his mother's womb and the promise that God was given that he said, Jacob, I'm going to make you great. Even though the younger you're the younger of two twins, I'm going to make you great. And we've seen his journey through the time he was born, grasping his brother's heel, deceiving, wrestling, trying to uh, surpass him, time he stole the birthright, stole the blessing of God and, and all these things. And last week, we got to a point where he's about 90-some hundred years old and he's wrestling with God, 97-year-old man wrestling with God. And that's where we kind of ended. That was the 10th week. In between last week and today, we've seen the story of his, his sons. We've seen the story of his, uh, his son Joseph and his, uh, how he went from the pit to the palace, all this stuff, Potiphar's house, and, and became this great prime minister of Egypt. Today, we're going to end this series in, uh, on empty, on Jacob's life, by looking at how he dies is I think it's highly instructive on how Jacob dies because it teaches us how we can finish well also. At some point in our lives, we're going to come to an end. Maybe it's the end of, of, of life in, in its finality before we enter into the, 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 the ever after. For all of us, we're going to face that. But for a lot of us, we're going to face different end points in our lives, the end of a season, the end of a, our, our time in our youth ministry, the end of our college years. Uh, some of you are going to move out of Orlando and going to move to a different place, and you're going to mark that as the end of a chapter. I want to talk today about how we can end well. Because it doesn't matter how well you start. It's how you end that will ultimately define who you are and what your story is as it's told throughout the years. I want to talk about how we can live in such a way that our lives will far outlast our years on earth, in Orlando, whatever season of life you're in. Okay. We're going to uh, look at this by looking at the last three scenes of Jacob's life. We're going to start in Genesis 48. And the text is actually, we're going to look at chapters 48 and 49. We're not going to look at all the verses, but three scenes. And I'm just going to highlight uh, three very simple thoughts on how we can let our lives echo and reverberate far after we've just departed from a certain place. Uh, the great Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkie said that these three chapters Mark, Jacob's finest hour. Genesis 48, 49, and the beginning part of chapter 50, Mark, Jacob's finest hour. So we're going to see how uh, he ends his life. But three, uh, three points. The first thought, and I'll just give you this uh, up front. The first thought is pass on to others what you've learned about God. Pass on to others what you've learned about God. We're going to see this starting in, in uh, verse, chapter 48. Um. Joseph, uh, Joseph was, was Jacob's, uh, one of his sons born later to him in life. And, uh, he, it's, it's been a long time. He hasn't seen him for a, for a while. He didn't even uh, think that he was going to see him. He thought, oh, my grandchildren, I'm never going to be able to see them ever again in my life, but he sees them. He's brought reunited all this stuff. And then in verse eight, chapter 48, verse eight, uh, Jacob is about to die. Actually, let's start verses one and two, just set the stage here. Sometime later. Joseph was told, Your father, that's Jacob, is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, Your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Verse 8. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, these are his grandsons, he asked, Who are these? Actually, he's about to die, so he's like, Who are these? They're the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless. Okay, sounds like the godfather, right? Now, Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Jacob, uh, so Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see uh, your children too. Okay, so what's happening? Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob is old. He's really old. He's about to die. This is his deathbed. And It's so important how he dies because in Genesis, there there are three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then there's there's Joseph. But when the writer of Genesis, when Moses writes about the death of these people, he devotes seven verses to talk about how Abraham died, three verses to talk about how uh, uh, Isaac died, five verses to talk about how Joseph died, but 73 verses are devoted to the deathbed of Jacob. Highly instructive here. He okay, said, so what's going on? He's about to die. And Joseph brings his two grandsons, his grandsons that uh, Jacob thought, I'm never going to see again, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he brings them and, and, and it says, he props himself up in verse, uh, verse two. Israel rallied his strength and sat up on his bed, on the bed. Okay? He's sitting up on his deathbed because he's like, you know what? I'm not going to just sit here and let you feel sorry for me. Okay? I know I'm about to die and he's going to die in just a few seconds. And by the time we're done with this message, he's going to be dead. Okay. He says, I'm about to die here, but I'm not just going to sit here and let you feel sorry for me. I'm going to get up and I'm going to bless you because I've got a story to tell. Because I've got a sermon to preach to you and you've got to listen up. And so he gets up with all of his strength because that's what grandfathers do. You know how grandparents are, right? If you are a grandparent or if you have a grandparent or you've uh, seen a grandparent. Uh, my, my, my old man was like RoboCop as a dad. But when he became a grandfather, he's like Mr. Rogers. He's like so beautiful and... Oh, you know, delightful. And, uh, we, we've got uh, one of uh, my daughter, Manny's friends, is, is Evelyn. And uh, her grandmother, Eugene's mother, uh, always like the kind, ever, ever since I've been here, she's always been so kind to me. Like, oh, you know, Pastor, hi, how are you doing and stuff. Last week, we're standing in the, in the receiving line at the end of service. And she came from the backside. So she kind of did a Pearl Harbor attack on me, but I didn't see her coming. She didn't, see, she didn't say anything to me just looked at me. She walked right by, and she just made a beeline to her, her granddaughter, Evelyn, and she was holding her, and she was hugging her, and I was all right with that because that's what grandparents do because grandchildren to them are life. And this is how it was with, with Jacob. He's like, who are these? They're your – he's not like, I can't see anything. Who are these cats? He's not saying that. Basically what he's saying, this is a formula for blessing. Like when you get married or when there's a wedding, it says, who presents or who gives this bride away? If they're not asking because the minister can't see. Again, this is how you begin a formal ceremony. And so when he says, who are, these, uh, who are these children? He's beginning a formal ceremony of blessing. What he's doing, in essence, he's passing on what he has learned through the ages, through the years to his children. Now, look what happens. Uh, he brings them and then uh, usually, uh, usually how it happened. Let me, let me preface this by saying, how it happened was that uh, the, the old man would take his sons and then he would bless them in the right hand. Okay, is is the right hand of authority and blessing. Okay, this is where the power came from. So the older son would get blessed by the right hand and the younger son would be blessed by the by the left hand. Okay? That's what happened. Manasseh older than Ephraim. But this is this is what happens in verse 13. Joseph took both of them <coughs> Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn, and then he blessed. And then verse 17, when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on the younger's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He, too, will become a great people, and he, too, will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. Now, you know what's going on here because you've seen this all throughout Jacob's life. Jacob's life, you know, everything about his life was that the younger was going to go before the older. Jacob was more favored over the older brother Esau. It was uh, the, the, the younger daughter, Rachel, that went before the older daughter, Leah, this was the, the paradigm of, of Jacob's life. In all of Jacob's life, he's realizing that God is teaching him something. That the way that God works goes completely contrary to the way the rest of the world works. The ways of God are completely countercultural when you look at it against the backdrop of the rest of culture. And Jacob is saying, I understand these things. I know these things. These are the things that I learned. And these are the things that I want to pass on. I know this is how the world does it. The world favors the older. It favors the handsome. It favors the beautiful. It favors the smart. It favors the strong. It favors the, the rich. But that's not how God works. God moves towards the broken. He moves towards the lonely. He moves towards the lowly. He moves towards the humble. He's saying, this is how God works. And if there's something that I want to pass on to the future generations to make my life outlast my years, then this is it. I'm going to take the things that God has given to me, and I'm going to pass it on so that you guys can get it so that my legacy will continue to live long after I've died. That's what Jacob is doing here. He crosses his hands to say that everything that God has taught me, I want to pass on to you guys, that you don't have to be the older. You don't have to be the wiser. You don't have to be the smarter in order for you to be loved by God. The question that I I want to ask us as we finish our chapters or as we think about our lives is what are you passing on to those who come behind you? Because all of us are passing something on. We're all passing something on to those who come behind us. How are you finishing? A lot of that depends on what you're passing on to people. As you finish out your uh, school year, as you finish out whatever it is that's this season of life you're in, what are you passing on to other people? I was part of a a campus ministry back at, at home when I was in college. It was a great campus ministry. Many kingdom workers have been produced through it. I remember my first two years just seeing the older brothers and sisters as they went on, saying, I want to love like that. I want to live like that. I want to pray like that. I want to be in the Word like that. I want to share the the message of hope with people who don't know it like they did. My third year rolled around, and I uh, lived in the same apartment complex as a bunch of uh, seniors, fourth-year students in this ministry. And I remember the last semester, I wanted to get a bird's-eye view, just an up-close look at how these men and women finished their years in college, how they would cement their story as it would be recalled through, the, uh, through all of time, uh, at least by those who knew them. And I wanted to see uh, how would these brothers and sisters, how would they finish? And because I lived in the same complex with them, they were always constantly coming in and out. And I remember seeing them stay up late into the night playing cards, staying up late into the night playing Mafia, Sitting up until 5 o'clock in the morning, talking about certain things or talking about certain people or watching TV and and doing all of these things. And I remember, and I know this is extremely uh, hypocritical and extremely judgmental and extremely prideful of me, but I remember looking at them and I said, that's not how I'm going to finish my time in college. I'm not going to let my last semester be spent just playing games and messing around and, and having fun with people. I know that's all important, but that's not how I want my legacy to be defined in my years in college. No, I'm not going to do that. I said, I'm going to give my everything. I'm going to pour, pour everything that God has given to me. I'm going to pour that in the lives of those who come behind me so that their, their lives would continue to live in the things that God has given to me. That I said with all of my, uh, my prayer when I was at, at University of Virginia was, I don't want to leave this place until I see a revival come to my campus. And I remember going back to, to speak at a retreat for this campus ministry about four years after I left UVA. And this one student raised their hand. And he said, you know, we heard about uh, your dreams and the hopes that you had for the campus. And I, I, the question I want to ask is how much of that dream do you think is still alive here and now in our time, in our day, in our age? And I said, I, I would be so willing to pray for a revival in the life of the people in the campus that I loved, Even if, it, if, even if I would never see it, I'd be willing to pray for that. Because that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted deep in my heart. I wanted to pass that, that legacy of, of praying for greater things that are yet to come. I wanted that to be how my life was defined when I left. And I said, again, in my, in my, uh, in my judgmental ways, in my self-righteous ways, I said, I don't want to end like that. I know that was bad of me, but really, that's not how I wanted to finish my time. I don't want these younger brothers and sisters looking at my life and saying, that's how he ended. I didn't didn't want people to say, that's the vision that he had, just have a good time and that's it. I hope that we can dream bigger for how we end certain seasons of our lives. Some of you who know you're not going to be here much longer because of whatever reason, because of school, because of college or whatnot, because of where you're going, and well, pass on what God has given to you and pass that on to other people so that your life will continue to reverberate even after you're gone from here. I think about people like we've got a couple guys in here who within a month, John Lee and and Josh Tico Kim, they're going to be leaving to go to uh, Berkeley College of Music in Boston and go to Toronto for a year in an exchange program. And I'm thinking, watching, how are they going to end their time here? And for the past couple months, they've been pouring everything that they've learned about worship and ministry into the lives of younger people. And I'm like, that's how you end well, guys. That's how you finish. You take everything that God's given to you, and you download all of that into people so that they will continue to live and that they will, out, they will surpass you when you leave this place. He, that's what he's doing here. Thank God has given me so much, and I'm going to pour that into you guys so that you don't go the way of the rest of the people because everyone knows that the church is one generation away from extinction. Always. If one generation doesn't pass the baton on to the next one, then the church is one generation away from extinction in your city, in my city, in our country, in our world. How are we going to finish? We finish well by passing on what we've got, what we've learned, and pouring that into other people so that they could take this and they could run with it beyond us. That's the first thing. You move to chapter 49, we see, uh, we see the second thing. The second way that we can end well is when you speak blessing into the lives of other people. Hey, Genesis 49, verse 1. He finished blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. And then verse 1. Then Jacob called for his sons, this is the 12 of them, and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. And then verse 3. It says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. And from the firstborn until the last, he goes on to pronounce his blessings over each and every single one of them. And then it says in verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. On his deathbed, he's about to die. And and again, we're, we're now like a few minutes away from his death. He's just about to die. But in his death, He pulls up and gets all the strength that he has. He downloads all of this information, these lessons, into the lives of those who come behind him. And then he says, bring all 12 sons. And to each of them, he begins pronouncing a blessing over them. Speaking into their lives the blessing appropriate to to each of them. And he knew them well enough that he was willing to speak specifically into each of their lives. He said, look, Claire, this is what I want to say to you. And he speaks directly into Claire's heart. And he says, Hannah, this is what you need. And he speaks blessing into her. And he says to to, to Mark, he says, this is what you need. And he speaks into his heart that appropriate to each of them. He begins to bless them. You want to end well. Let your words be a blessing to other people. Speak into their hearts. Give birth to dreams. Give birth to visions within them. Speak something life-giving into them because a lot of times the words that our culture uses are words that just just don't build people up. Or things that are just mere flattery. Oh, you know what? You're the most uh, prettiest person that I've ever seen. Or, you know what? You're the, you have the most muscles that everyone's ever seen. People say that to me all the time. But we say things like that all the time. But what if we begin to speak words of true blessing into each other's lives? To enable them to become something greater. See, I think the, the amazing thing here is that what Jacob is doing to each of his 12 sons is what he longed for his father to do to him. But it's what his dad never did for him unless he dressed up to become somebody else. His dad, Isaac, said, Esau, come, I want to bless you. And Jacob was completely left out of it. And yet somehow this man who is so empty and devoid of that blessing comes at the end of his life. And he's just, free, he's giving blessing out like candy here. He's like, come, blessing for you, for you, for you. Just tossing it out. Like trick or treat, sons, in a new way, right? Here it is. Why? Because somewhere along the line at the end of his life, he encountered the living God. And the man who was empty became full said, I don't need to seek the words of approval from other people anymore. I've got it from God and he's filling me and he's filling me and he's filling me so that on my deathbed, I can give everything that I've got to other people and I can bless them. Isn't that amazing? Who in your life have you blessed lately? It's someone who, who would think about their lives and say, you know what? Because of James, my life is forever different. There's a, a lady named Marianne Bird, and she tells a story, and it's, it's quite popular, so you may have heard it. She was born with a, with a cleft palate, and so she had um, all kinds of, of difficulties when she was growing up. Not only that, she was shorter than everybody else, but because of her cleft palate, uh, she had garbled speech, she would, uh, she would uh, drool a lot. People would always make fun of her. When they asked her, hey, what happened to you? She would always say, I tripped and fell on a piece of glass. Because she said, somehow, it's a lot easier for me to say that than for people to think and to know that I was born this way. And so she would tell people that story. And she tells about how she was in elementary school, and there was this one teacher that everybody loved. And this one teacher, in this uh, part of of school, you would have to do this hearing test. And you would put your uh, ear against a cup against the wall, and on the other side of the wall, the teacher would whisper something to you. And they'd done this, you know, they do this every year. And they would say things like, the sky is blue. Or did you get new shoes today? And it was her turn to go up to to, to the wall and and held up the cup. And her teacher whispered something into her ear. And as she writes about this, she says, "Um, God must have given her those words. Because those seven words changed my life forever. She said, when I lean my ear up against the wall to listen, she said, I wish that you were my little girl. She said, nobody has ever said that to me before. Those words changed my future because I realized that somebody cared about me. Right? That's one way that your life will outlive your own. You begin to make somebody greater because of the words you speak into their lives. I shared this at our teacher training yesterday, but there was a, an older pastor in my life, not much, he's just a few years older than me, but I remember him speaking words of life and blessing into, into me at a time when I needed it the most. He had, had uh, challenged me after I came back from college. He said, you know what, DL, um, you're going to teach. You're going to preach this Bible study to our college and young adults, a group of about 60 people. You're going to teach. And I said, uh, you sure you want me to do that? He said, yeah, yeah just, just do it. I said, okay, I'll do it. He said, I want you to do it every week. And I said, I'm not going to do it every week. He said, "At least do it uh, for four weeks at a time, and then I'll do four weeks, and then you do four weeks." And after doing this for about two, three months, I was completely convinced that this was—I was the most unqualified person for it. Every time I would get up there, I would—I would just sweat like crazy. If I noticed that even one person wasn't paying attention, or if it didn't seem like I was connecting with them, it, it was just completely obvious to everybody else that I felt uncomfortable. They felt uncomfortable, and I remember saying, "I don't know if I want to go. I don't know if I want to go into ministry." And at that point in time, uh, Hank sent me an email. I was working in in real estate at the time, and he sent me an email, and I got it at work, and I still remember reading this email. It was just like uh, a couple paragraphs, but each sentence in it was just so filled with blessing over my life, things that I so much needed to hear. Like, DL, you know, you, you can do this, man. You are better than most of the people that I know who are doing this. You just, need to, you just need to rise up into your calling. You need to believe that God has called you to do this. You need to believe that through you, life is being given to people. You need to believe this. And as you just began speaking life into me. That was all I need. He said, uh, when, I heard you, when I heard you that one day, even though I'm only four or five years older than you, I felt like I was a proud papa watching my son up there. And I remember saying, man, that's all I need. That's what I need. And I, I, I'm just like a little scrub here right now, but I know that my life is so much better because of him. I, 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 my, my love language is words, and so this means a whole lot more to me. And on several occasions, I've written to him and said, you know, I, I just want to remind you of who you are in my life. I need you to know this because maybe you need to be reminded because maybe uh, I can do for you what you one day did for me. Is there a person in your life, are there people in your life who would say that I'm better because Paul spoke blessing into my life? I'm better because Hannah spoke blessing into my life. I'm better because Stephen spoke into my life. Is there someone who can say that? See, here's the beauty of it. We hear this sometimes on the radio. Today, no matter how, how uh, poorly you've lived, no matter how well you live, today is the first day of the rest of your life. No matter what your life was up to this point in time, today's the first day of the rest of your life and your legacy begins now. How you end begins right now. Whether that's a 20-year march to the end, whether that's a 40-year march to the end, whether that's just a one month until the end when you go off to, to college or wherever it is that you're going. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. We begin now. Pass on to others the lessons that God has learned. Speak blessing into the lives of other people, especially if you're a parent. Imagine how much harm has been done through the lips of parents, but imagine for for the good, how much good could be done. We began to speak words of blessing in life. Imagine what you could do to your parents if you, instead of saying, mom, dad, why are you always nagging me? Why are you always cutting me down? Gosh, why are you so this? Why are you so that? What if we begin to speak blessing into our parents' lives? That they would finish their journey well. What if we began to do that? Today's the first day of the rest of our lives. The last thing that we see, the last thing that we see is point others then to the promises of God. What it says in verse 29, same chapter 49. He blessed them and it says, Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury we, me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. Their Isaac and his wife Rebecca were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were brought from the Hittites, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Then it was done. This is Jacob's finest hour here, this deathbed series of blessings, and then at the end it says, "I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron, near all this stuff. The cave in the field of Machpelah near in Canaan." Why is this so important? What's going on here? A couple of generations before, God had promised Abraham that I'm going to give you a land. The land that is promised to you is called Canaan. I'm going to give this land to you, and you're going to inhabit it. And in Jacob's death, he has options of where he's going to be buried. He's in Egypt right now because you remember Joseph became baller, prime minister of Egypt, and they give him all these blessings. And the easiest thing would be just bury yourself here in Egypt because this is where Joseph, this is where all your family is. Just bury him here in Egypt. That's the first option that you have. Your second option is on the way to Canaan, there's this place where where your, your beautiful wife, your beloved wife, Rachel, died giving birth to Benjamin. You could be buried with her. The third option is a dangerous and long journey all the way back to the promised land in Canaan, or you could be buried there. Three options. One is with family and his children, the other is with his beloved wife, and the other is with the promises of God. And he's saying, the last action of my life, the last thing that people see of me. I don't want, I know it's great. I love my wife. I love my children, but I don't want people to say that I love my family. I don't want people to say that I love my, my wife. More than anything, I want them to say, I know I want them to say that, but more than anything, I want them to say that I kept my faith in the promises of God, even though I never saw it with my eyes. That's what he's saying. Bury me in the land that was promised to me, even though I never see it with my eyes. Bury me in that land because God's promise is true. He will always be faithful, even though I don't see it. My God does not delay in his timing. God, bury me there, bury me there in the land that was promised because I want my life when all is said and done, when people say, let's go visit the tomb of Jacob, I want them to see that I was buried in the land that was promised by God, not in the place where my wife was, not in the place where my my children were, but I want to be defined as one who, even though my life ended, the promises of God didn't. Think that's how I want my life to be defined. Bury me there. Let my life, let my tombstone be a testimony pointing to the great faithfulness and the promises of God. See, Jacob, the first 97 years of his life were jacked up, stupid, messed up, broken. He did all of these foolish things, but he said, you know what? That's not what's going to define me. I was faithless, but God has always been faithful to me. And I want to point you guys to see that. I want to point you guys to see that, to see the faithfulness of God. Don't look at my failures. Don't look at my mistakes. Yeah, you can learn from them. But at the end of the day, at the end of my life, see the promises of God that my God is and forever will be faithful. That's all. That's all. And then he breathed his last and he died. We end well when we point people to the promises of God and to show that God is faithful. To show that God is faithful, I said this oftentimes, but every old person I know who's walked with the Lord for a long time, I ask them, what is the one thing? What is the one thing that you wish you could tell people? What is the one thing that you learned in all your years of walking with Jesus? They won't say we need to pray. We need to worship. We need to love our spouses. They say all these things as secondary. But the most important thing they say is that God is faithful. You ask any person who's been walking the walk for a long time, and that's what they will always say, is I have blown it, I have messed up, I've screwed up, I've been faithless, I've been unfaithful, but God has always been faithful to me. He was a hound of heaven that's been pursuing me, chasing me, running after me. Oh, love that won't ever let me go. He has been pursuing after us, and he will always be faithful to the promises that he's made. And that's what Jacob's life is a testimony to. I was unfaithful, but God has always been faithful. And his life screamed that at the end of it all Bury me. Even though I die, God doesn't die. Even though I die, the promises live on. And see that in me. That's what he's saying. We end well when we point others to the faithfulness that is in God. And all of his life was a living, breathing testimony to the fact that God is bigger, that God is stronger. That God is greater than anything that we could ever do in our lives. That no matter how many people he's cheated, no matter how think of all the years of pain that he inflicted upon his unloved wife, Leah. And yet God was faithful to him and he said, I want people to know that. I was a terrible man. I was a terrible husband. But my God remained true to me always and never, ever, ever gave up on me. I think some of us really need to to know this. And some of us really need to know this here. One of the major lessons that, that all of us who went to, to JAMA this past couple weeks ago uh, was re- were reminded of is that Jesus Christ, the faithful one, is bigger than any mistake that you can make in your life. And some of y'all desperately need to hear this today. That though you are unfaithful, our God will always remain faithful that he will never, ever change. Yesterday, today, he's the same. No matter how big your mistake is, no matter how heinous your sin is, no matter the things of your past, God is bigger than that. No matter what you did last night, God is bigger than that. No matter what you are going to do tomorrow, God is bigger than that. No matter the things you've got planned to do with your boyfriend or girlfriend, no matter what you've got planned to do, God is bigger than that. And some of us deeply, desperately need to hear this and need to know this, need to know this. That God is so much bigger than your failures, than your circumstances, than your depression, than your sexual sin, than your hatred towards these people that you can't forgive, that God is so much bigger than your mistakes. And when we get this, when we know this, when we believe this, and we've got a story to tell, we've got a story to tell. In November 2004, uh, this happened in New York, November uh, a freezing rain coming down the streets of New York. It's a car filled with delinquent teenage boys just looking for a joy ride, looking for fun, a little bit after midnight. Came from a movie theater. Action movies weren't good enough for them, so they decided to create their own action. Broke into a car, busted through, uh, took someone's purse, uh, got credit card, went to the movie store, bought $400 of, of video games and DVDs, uh, stopped by the grocery store, surveillance camera shows, and picking up a 20-pound frozen turkey, and then they leave. About 1230, okay. 44-year-old woman, Victoria Rosales, something like that. Victoria uh, Rose, we'll, call, we'll say that's her name. Driving on the other side, Hyundai filled with boys, a Mazda filled with this, this 44-year-old woman coming back from her uh, niece's recital, 14-year-old niece. Long day. She's tired. Only thing she wants is to get into her home, get into her electric blanket, sleep, have a good night's sleep. 1230, the paths converge. She never saw it coming. She had no recollection of the incident. But one of these boys, a guy named Ryan, took this 18-year-old boy, took this 20-pound turkey, flung it out the window, went through her windshield, jacked her steering wheel all the way back, destroyed her face, every bone that it touched, broken. And for nine hours and three months, rehabilitation took place, and bloggers, news all over New York City got wind of this, and the public outcry was crazy. Everybody's like, this kid needs to die. She had wires in her jaw, complete constructive facial surgery. People are telling her the story. They can't tell if she's moved by emotion because no, nothing in her face can move. She's just wearing this, this hideous mask of a face with all of these things coming out of it. Bloggers are picking up. They say, you know what? This boy, especially the 18-year-old boy, who, Ryan, who threw this turkey out the window, he needs to die. His face is the one that should have been messed up. His life is the one that should forever be ended. They're screaming out about it, New York, uh, CNN, all these places catching it, airing it. Everybody knows about this case. It goes to court, right, uh, eventually in, in August. But as people are hearing about it, right, Thanksgiving, everyone in New York City, as they gather around the table, thank you that I'm not Victoria. Christmas rolls around, everyone is like, thank God that I've got my health still. Thank God that I've still got my health. New Year's rolls around and people flip the page and all of a sudden they're ready. They're calling for this guy's life. I think it's August 2005. They have this court case. They bring these teenagers in, They especially bring in Ryan, and they bring in Victoria for the first time. His face meets her broken face. And he just breaks down. And everyone in the courtroom is just still screaming bloody murder. Judge goes up there. It's all in the hands of of the court here. Everything that happens is boys in the hands of the court. They find out the decision has been made that a plea bargain has been struck. Six months. Six months in jail, a little bit of community service, and everyone is livid. Like, what in the world is that? Six months in this this tiny little jail for ruining this woman's life? Like, who in the world even came up with this plea bargain? And they find out that it was uh, Victoria. She wanted to grant leniency to this boy. And as this trial ends, as they're walking towards each other, like he's completely devastated by this grace. And he walks over and she hugs him. And she begins stroking his head. This tough boy is no longer. He completely crumbles in her arms. She strokes his hair. And she says, I want you to be my own. I want you to live a better life than you've lived. You can become something great. And she blessed him He goes off. And everyone in that courtroom, like New York attorneys, these guys never cry. All of them are weeping and New York Times says, this is an amazing moment, a historic moment, what New York Times calls it. Because forgiveness has fallen and this guy Ryan for the rest of his life will never forget and will never stop talking about that day when he was forgiven Of all of his mistakes. Now, this is our story too. And we've done so much worse than he did. Do you understand? We've done so much worse. We've taken this 20 pound turkey, we've thrown it out the window, and it has crushed our Savior Jesus Christ. And every part of him was broken on that cross. And yet he still screams, not for six months. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You guys, Jesus Christ is bigger than any mistake that you can make. He's bigger than any failure that you've ever done. He's bigger than any sin that you've committed. He's bigger than any flaw in your life. He's bigger than any blemish in your past. He's bigger than all of these things. And he pronounces these words of forgiveness over us. He says, go free. I've taken your punishment. Don't live with it anymore. Don't live in this prison of unforgiveness because I've set you free. Go in the glorious freedom of the children of God. You've been set free. You're no longer living in the shackles anymore. Go free, people of God. Go free. Receive this free grace. Because there is a thief on the cross who for all of his life lived in complete rebellion, and yet in one moment he finished so well because he said, Jesus, will you remember me in paradise? That one moment he said, Jesus, I need you. I can't do it on my own. And Jesus looked at him and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Your past has been forgiven. Enter into glorious rest. And he says that to each and every single one of us in here whether you've received this life or not, he says today is the first day of the rest of your life. See, when Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't say, wait, Father, wait, wait, I forgot to do something. Now he ended well, so that when it was finished, he said, it is finished. I have no regrets. And so that when he sits at the right hand of the Father, he looks at his son, Jesus, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. To hear those words, saints of God. It doesn't matter where we've been up until this point in time. Today's the first day of the rest of our lives. And he says, live in it, live in it, live in it. I've done all this for you. Believe it. It's yours. Let's pray. My friends, guys, some of y'all in here are living just overwhelmed by the weight of your past and of your sins? Do we believe that Jesus is bigger, that he is stronger, that he is able? It therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Now, if there's any of us in here, as we just close our, close our eyes and bow our heads to pray, some of y'all who the word of God has spoken, let's just respond. God, help me to finish well. Help me to bless others. Help me to point people to the promises and faithfulness of God. Help me to, to, to pass on the lessons that God has taught me. Let, let's begin to pray. But maybe some of us in here still living, running away from our past because we don't think that we've been forgiven. I don't know if there's anyone like that in here. Maybe the Lord's spoken to you, but if there's anyone here with everyone else praying with our eyes closed, if there's anyone like that, you can just raise your hand. Um, I just want to recognize you so that we can chat. We'll, we'll, we'll pray here together. I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, but if there's anyone here like that, feels like, you know what? I need a new beginning. I need a new beginning. I need Jesus to forgive me, to be my personal master, to be my personal king. If anyone like that, just. Everyone is, is praying here with our eyes closed. Everyone like that you can just slip up your hand. Okay. Okay, thank you. There's there's a couple folks in here. Okay, very good. You can put your hand down. I can see. Anyone else like that? You know what? I need a new beginning. I'm running so fast trying to get away, but it keeps on catching up to me. I need someone to do away with this once and for all to throw it into the sea of forgetfulness and to put up a sign that says no more digging it's over it's done jesus paid it all anyone like that feel like yeah you know what i need i need jesus i need him in my life i want to uh, just say a uh, take a moment to pray right now and as i pray this prayer if y'all can just repeat this in your heart. Because the, the door of our hearts, as Jesus stands at the door and knocks, Revelation 3.20 says, the door of our hearts is on the inside. We've got to open it up. He's not going to barge in because he's a good gentleman. He loves us. He cares. wants us to make that choice. And so for those who raise their hand, and maybe those who are sitting here who didn't want to raise your hand but you feel the tug of God, let's just open the door of our hearts right now by just praying this prayer, just walks us through the steps of the gospel. I'm going to pray, and y'all, just in your heart, just pray this and affirm it and just invite the Lord Jesus to be your, your Savior. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you that I was created for a great purpose. I was created to be in relationship with the Father. Perfect God. But I messed up. The Bible calls that sin. I hurt myself, I hurt others, I hurt you. But you wanted to be with me so badly that you sent your only son. God became man, and he lived a perfect life. And yet at the end of it all, instead of being rewarded, he was killed on a cross. He took my punishment. I believe, Jesus, that you died for me. You took my sin upon yourself and received the punishment that I deserve. I believe this in my heart. Come and be my Savior. And now come and be my Lord because you have given to me a blood-bought sinner, everything that you deserved. Fill me, Holy Spirit, and make me the kind of person you want me to be. I will live to love you because you've loved me first. In Jesus' name. Let me pray for the rest of us. Father in heaven, for those who prayed that prayer now, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would seal that within their hearts, that Jesus, you would have entered into the lives of many people who did not know you before and that they would begin a relationship with you that from now, even now in their hearts, they would sense and know something different, that there would be the sweet presence of God in their lives, the beautiful fragrance of Christ just changing the way they live and see. That spirit of God, you would rise up within them and that you would transform their hearts. The old would be gone, no more living, in fear of the past, no more living in condemnation, but now living in freedom. For those who've believed now for the first time, as well as for those who've lived and believed for a while, we pray that forgiveness would flow and that the blood of Christ would wash us, the name of Jesus would protect us, and that we would all begin now, the first day of the rest of our lives, that we would end well. Thank you so much. We love you. Thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name.